So what if instead of um, one worldview, reality view, ontology, epistemology, cosmology um, uh, being declared um, the singular uh, uh, truth um, over another or others, um, instead of that kind of um, war, uh, cultural war, um, what if we opened up to the idea of pluralism? Not just um, because we uh, think we should be nice to each other, and we should, um, but but actually on 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 philosophical grounds, because um, we realize the mistake in insisting on. Um, there is a singular reality, a singular truth, um, uh, approached by a singular epistemology, etc. Um, so, again, so much at the forefront, ahead of his time, uh, Nietzsche points out how much... Um, uh, what, what's going on for us emotionally, um, our affects, actually affect um, the perspectives we have. Um, so, uh, the and let me read a passage from his um, on the genealogy genealogy of morals. Um, let us guard, he says, let us guard against the snares of such contradictory concepts as pure reason. Absolute spirituality, knowledge in itself, etc. These always demand that we should think of an I, E-Y-E, an I that is completely unthinkable, an I turned in no particular direction, in which the active and interpreting forces through which alone seeing becomes seeing something are supposed to be lacking. These always demo- those kind of ideas about pure knowledge. Um, these these always demand of the eye an absurdity and a nonsense. There is only a perspectival seeing, only a perspective knowing. And the more affects, the more affects, the more emotions uh, or emotional drives we allow to speak about one thing, the more eyes different eyes we use to observe one thing, the more complete will our concept of this thing, our so-called objectivity, be. Yes? So, plurality. More um, more affects, more uh, equals more perspectives, more eyes. And then, then if you like, um, reality or thing, as I said, text or existence being... Um, multi-aspected, if you like, multi-amenable to multi-perspectives, rather than just one, <clears throat> um, so that our our knowing is always, um, if you like, uh, involved. It's always got, uh, as I said, a desire. It's interested in something. Uh, we've always got some kind of. Um, uh, affect going on, some kind of mind state and some kind of drive or intention. And and so it's always situated. Our, our, the, the, the knower, the seer, the meditator, whatever it is, is always situated. Um, there's an entwining of our 
desires, our drives, our thought, our concept, our affect, all of that. Um, A guy called David Owen uh, writes about Nietzsche. Our consciousness is neither disembedded in all of that and and in culture, uh, nor disembodied. Knowing, like seeing, is an activity which attends the embedded and embodied character of human subjectivity. So, whether it's perception or conception, it's influenced by um, desire, affect, um, perspective, body, all of that. Um, So Nietzsche talked about uh, knowing as interpreting. All knowing about the world (coughs) is necessarily an act of interpretation, a selection of certain features and a disregarding of others. All knowing about the world is necessarily an act of interpretation of hermeneutics, a selection of certain features and a disregarding of others, and that's exactly what science does. We only know, quote, according to our point of view, our particular cognitive and affective perspective. In other words, uh, in other words, yeah. I'm actually quoting now from a guy called Christopher Hawke, um, who wrote a book about uh, Jung, uh, and involves a little discussion about <coughs> about uh, postmodern thought and Nietzsche. So we only know, according to our point of view, our particular cognitive and affective perspective. And no knowledge, including that of so-called science, can be exempt from this. Moreover, we select according to our interests. So we're back with this, what do we want? And can we, can we actually admit that what we want is influencing our uh, concept, worldview, perspective, interpretation, slant, perception, conception? There is no disinterested knowing, and Nietzsche writes in uh, his Beyond Good and Evil, it is perhaps just dawning on five or six minds, he wrote this at the end of the 19th century, it's perhaps just dawning on five or six minds that physics too is only an interpretation and an arrangement of the world, according to our requirements, if I may say so, and not an explanation of the world. Um... So, the affect, what's going on for us emotionally, and our intentions, and our desires, affect our perspectives. Knowledge is perspectival. Um, The ideas, uh, in other words, uh, the ideas and the perception, the conception and the perception, all our cognition is dependent on what's going on emotionally and and what our desires are. Knowing is interpreting, uh, which involves selecting, um, emphasizing um, certain aspects, disregarding others. Um, this is interpreting is another word for hermeneutics, and that our interpretations depend on our interests. It's wrapped up with our desires. What do we want? As I said, mindfulness too is is uh, not divorced from desire. Mindfulness wants something. What does it want? Um, always our interests, our desires are wrapped up in uh, our perspectives which give to us then what we see and what we think. Um, then there follows um, uh, this David Owen who's, who's writing about Nietzsche 
um, talks about pluralism. So this is what I wanted to emphasize, that an interpretation about the world in, in, in this idea of pluralism does not, and this idea of interpretation that, that Nietzsche had, um, an interpretation about the world does not exclude the truth of other interpretations of the world which serve other interests. It is an important feature of perspectivism, this idea that um, reality and existence is open to multiple perspectives. Um, it is an important feature of perspectivism that it rejects the idea that the truth about the world could be exhausted by any single description of it. So there's actually an insistence on pluralism, not just um, because we need to get on with each other, which is important, but also from on philosophical grounds. Actually, be honest, be rigorous. Look what's happening in perception and conception and belief and assumption and mindfulness and philosophy and science and all the rest of it. Uh, so the truth of a certain interpretation, of a certain hermeneutics, of a certain perspective, doesn't imply... Um, the lack of truth of other interpretations. Um, <clears throat> uh, again, Isaiah Berlin writing about uh, Vico and, and talking within, uh, writing about Vico within the context of talking about pluralism. Um, and he, he says, I prefer coffee, you prefer champagne. We have different tastes. There's no more to be said. That is relativism. Okay, so that's not pluralism. It's just, I like this, you like that. We have different tastes, that's it. That's relativism. Vico's view, Berlin writes, Vico's view is not that it is what I should... Is, is not that, sorry. Vico's view is not that. It is, it is what I should describe as pluralism. That is, the conception that there are many different ends that men, let's say, human beings, may seek and still be fully rational. Fully man, fully human, capable of understanding each other and sympathizing and deriving light from each other. So this, um, it's not an exclusive singular truth. There are different um, takes, different perspectives, and they, they can all have truth. They can all be true. They can all be rational because they serve different ends. Yes. In other words, what what do we want? What's our interest? That will shape the perspective, that will shape the interpretation, that will shape the perception and conception. And all wrapped in that is the epistemology, the uh, ontology, the cosmology, the metaphysics, and all that. Um, so we, human beings, have different ends, and we may seek different ends and still be fully rational, fully human, capable of understanding each other and sympathizing and deriving light from each other. So again, it's a social concern. <clears throat> but for me, it's more than just a social concern, it's a philosophical concern as well. So we have, in our um, soul-making uh, logos and practice, we have, in, in, in our... Uh, desire, we have the end of soul-making. We have, that's our, the ends to which we are aiming. And, 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 and aiming it at that is different than aiming it at an, an objective truth. Or saying this is true and that other thing isn't. So we're employing rationality. Some of its logos employs rationality in the service of the end of soul-making. The goal of
of soul making. So we come back again and again to what this question, what do you want? What do I want? What do you want? Of course, that changes at different times. In some situations, I want some. I want this or that, or I, and I and I have this perspective or that perspective. What do we want now? I heard two stories um, about a um, a Burmese sayadaw, and uh, these are secondhand. But um, one said that he must have must have uh, ordained as a monk after after. He had children or a child or something, and he uh, and been practicing as a meditator before that. Otherwise, it doesn't quite make sense to me. But um, anyway, he says he was uh, present at the birth of his uh, child and uh, lifted the child uh, as 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 they were born and um, held the child. And then he said, "I looked inside myself, and there was no emotion. There was no emotion." And this was described as a triumph of um, of, of Dharma practice. This was the um, the uh, fruit of his Dharma practice. That here was his own uh, son or daughter um, lifted up from uh, from birth, the birth, and there was no emotion. Uh, this is a triumph of practice, or, or being portrayed or conveyed as, uh, as I understood it, as a triumph of practice. And the person who conveyed this story to me said she was, she was I'm horrified was not her word, but she's saying it's like, boy, is that what I want? Uh, I have questions about this guy. Um, and another story uh, of this Sayadaw. Walking in the beautiful hills of Burma, I've never visited. Apparently, they're just exquisitely beautiful, and these sort of rolling green hills that go off into the, into the into this kind of blue of the uh, of, of the sky there. And uh, the monks, this uh, person who told me this was a monk at the time, um, under this side door, and they were walking in the hills mindfully, etc., on their on their walk, and. Uh, and he stopped at a certain point and just was overcome with the beauty of of uh, of the uh, environment around him and seeing these hills and in the sky and, and the nature there and he was just in in rapt awe standing there and um a, a minute or so later the the sayadaw because they were walking single file the sayadaw came up um and just stood behind him and said uh what is beauty? It's just form and color. Um, and this person who was a monk, a junior monk, um, just thought to himself, "I don't think you and I, I don't think you and I understand each other." Um, he didn't say that, but that was the thought. Um, so, again, the question: What do you want? What do you want? What what kind of sensing do you want to open up? What kind of emotional life do you want to open up? Uh, where is your practice headed? Where do you want it to be headed? And similarly, I, I read uh, quite a while ago uh, a, a different uh, Burmese teacher describing um, uh, what he conceived of as the Arahant's experience. And it basically sounded like a kind of impersonal machine, sort of just aware of the um, atomistic processes unfolding in time. 
and that's their the fully enlightened beings experience of existence this kind of uh, ticker tape of um, of 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 existence of life of being uh, so does the victor Arahant, by the way, mean, one of the meanings is victor, foe destroyer. Does the victor become a prisoner? A prisoner of a certain um, mode and direction and scope of sensing and perceiving and, and believing and conceiving? I mean, it's a whole other question whether that really was the totality of these, um, uh, these monks' experience whether uh, it really was always that he had no emotion in, in regards to his children, whether always he um, perceived beauty and deconstructed it as kind of meaningless um, shades of form and colour which we can only get attached to <clears throat> in a problematic way, and therefore we need to see through them, or whether the Arahant really only experiences that atomistic process and the impersonality of that. Um, or is it just that the, the conceptual framework won't allow them to articulate different experiences and different pulls? So is it really that there's that much of a prison that actually they've completely cut off certain kinds of sensibilities and experiences? Or is it really that they, they just don't have the language and the, the conceptual structure to um, articulate or give value or even admit um, experiencing something times, or admit to themselves. Um, what I used to call, uh, what I still call dot-to-dot uh, meditation, this kind of, um, and uh, taught that in, in the context of teaching emptiness, <clears throat> and it's quite an easy meditation to do with basic mindfulness, and it's a kind of reductionism. So this big thing, <clears throat> maybe this big, I can do it spatially with, say, a pain in my body, or <clears throat> over time, with experiences that are, uh, are um, taking place in time, instead of them joining up into one big problematic um, thing, or something lovely. It's this going to be this fantastic experience, and the mind has kind of joined, you can say the mind has joined together these atomistic dots, and actually um, deconstructing that, seeing uh, the dot-to-dot. I called it that because um, of those uh, drawing books that... I, I used to have when I was a very young kid and you sort of have numbers and you draw you pencil or, or crayon between the dots and then you get a, a drawing from the, just these atoms. So it's a kind of seeing uh, a certain level of fabrication of experience and so you can kind of unfabricate by being aware of that and there's a kind of reduction in that, in, a reductionism in that, into the, into the view uh, that ensues then. So we get a kind of, um, there is a strong strand of reductionist um, perception, reductionist um, ontology and epistemology and, and all that um, in, in the Dharma and uh, certainly something that I've employed <coughs> uh, myself as well. You also get it, in, interestingly, in other traditions. So I was reading about Marcus Aurelius, Emperor Marcus Aurelius, a Roman emperor, was also um, a, a still very widely respected and very influential philosopher, Stoic philosopher. And he describes practices, um, if I can find them, <coughs> um, um, and I read about this through Michel Foucault, um, 
decomposing the object in time. Exercises decomposing the object in time. Exercises decomposing the object into its constituent parts. And third, exercises of reductive disqualifying description, all of which are very um, uh, Dharma-esque, if you like. Um, and then uh, he talks about an example um, um, that's quite striking, uh, Foucault says, that involves musical notes or dance movements or movements, uh, something like that. Um, and and the instruction uh, that Marcus Aurelia gives, a philosophical instruction, is pay attention to music. When when you're around music, or, or there's a beautiful piece of music, or, or, or a beautiful dance happening, pay attention in a way that kind of atomizes. Um, so pays attention just to this note right now, and not the whole, the movement of, say, the sweep of a melody, or, or the, the sweep uh, and, and the flow of the motion, the integrity, the whole of the gestalt, or the whole of the motion of the dancer, or whatever. Um, and <coughs> why? Um, so Marcus already says, why? Because then you will scorn a delightful song, a dance, um, or, or whatever. So he's giving this as advice, as deconstructive, um, reductionist advice, in order not to be attached. Um, and then he says, always remember to go straight for the parts themselves, and by analysis, by this kind of reductionist analysis, come to scorn them. Um, and to scorn, and Foucault goes into some bit about uh, Greek etymology and whatever, but it means basically to, 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 to look down on. Um, and, and that's why? Because if we look at a dance in the continuity of its movements, or if we hear a melody in its unity, we will be carried away by the beauty of the dance or the charm of the melody. We will be weaker than it. If we want to be stronger than the melody of the da- of, or the dance, if we want to prevail over it, um, if we want to retain this superiority, if we don't want to be weaker than the whole of the melody, etc., etc., it will be by dissecting it instant by instant, note by note, movement by movement. And then we realize at once when we do that that there is nothing good in these notes and movements. Um, Foucault goes on a little bit, and uh, then he says, This text I've just been reading on musical notes and dance ends, however, this Marcus Aurelius text, however, with something... Uh, we're saying this. In short, say, uh, um, always remember to go straight for the parts themselves. Actually, he gives an exception that has to do with uh, virtue, morality, but of the self. But um, always remember to go straight for the parts themselves and by analysis come to scorn them. And now apply the same procedure to life as a whole. Um, so this analytical deconstruction of the perception of continuities, um, etc., etc., and and he applies that to to life as a whole. Uh, so you get it. You get this kind of deconstructive. It's very popular in Pali Canon Buddhism and other Buddhisms. Very popular in Theravadan, um, in different kinds of uh, other spiritual traditions um, that kind of mirror mirror that, but. What's partly interesting to me here is that the the very examples he uses are music and dance. So this is exactly, I think, the sort of thing that Nietzsche, were, were he aware of it, would howl at with outrage and 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 his own kind of scorn. 
when does when does disenchantment become just silly? When does reductionism become silly and um, uh, serve only limited ends? So we can end up um, reducing, applying it to life as a whole, and then actually clinging to the view, the interpretation, the hermeneutics of reality that ensues. Then, why? And again, it's um, the the uh, because then we will conquer. We will be stronger than. Uh, we will we will not be weaker than. We will not be attached, etc. And again, one asks, is the victor then, the one who is stronger, actually imprisoned by the limitations of the worldview then? And the limitations of what's allowed by a certain philosophy. So, um, beauty in art or in nature, music, emotions, narratives, selves, if we're always going to deconstruct these things, the beautiful, the artistic, the, 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 the lovely music, the emotions, the narratives, the selves. If these are always deconstructed, that is silly. I think that's silly. Because sometimes we, want, we have other ends. We have other wants, other desires. We want um, our sense of, of whatever this thing is to open up uh, to open up differently rather than just that we don't feel weak in relation to them, that we don't feel attached in relation to them. We want, for example, a sensing with soul with everything that comes with that, the meaningfulness, the beauty, the dimensionality, the divinity, the duty, all of that. So, you know, um, just just not too long ago, um, I was practicing with a friend and... Uh, um, this perception opened up of uh, somehow of interstellar rocks, or the kind of fragments of rock that you might find, um, say, in, in Jupiter or Saturn's, uh, sorry, in Saturn's rings, you know, little little lumps of uh, everything from sort of granular uh, molecules to all the way up to little rocks. Um, and that vision, uh, and then of my body and her body as as made up of stone if you like or it, it, um, and so it was a it was a, a sensing the soul into the earth element into the element of solidity we might say usually when that meditation on the four elements is given in a Theravadan context it's for the sake of deconstructing the body and making us uh, unattached or in the service of less attachment to the body and the physical form of the body and what happens to the body. Um, so again, it's it's like Marcus Aurelius. We don't want to be weak in relation. We don't want to be um, overpowered by an attachment to that. So we reduce, we employ a mode of looking that's the four elements. It's in the Satipatthana Sutta. But it, um, in a way... Uh, Usually, the way it's taught, it disenchants and uh, unattaches. This um, sensing with soul, soul of this, um, you could say, this cosmic earth element and this um, the the stone element in me, 
the earth element in me and in my friend, um, was not, however, uh, lacking in holiness. It wasn't flat. There was a dimensionality there. And it was this, I stayed with it. I was really struck by it. It was, it was as if the stone had its own soul. And it had its own subjectivity, and it had its own intelligence. And if you've listened, I think I describe in the Eros Unfetter talks how that kind of intersubjectivity and recognition of soul in the beloved erotic object will uh, open out to a sense of soul there, a sense of subjectivity there, a sense of in intelligence. There was a particular kind of intelligence and a particular kind of seeing. What is it to see and to sense existence as the, as the stone sense it? So the holiness was there. The dimensionality was there. It wasn't a flattening and a deconstructing that took away that enchantment. Um... So there's something similar there, perhaps, to some uh, tantric or vajrayana meditations on, on the elements. Very different uh, orientation and relationship with the earth element, or the water element, or the fire element. Its holiness is there. Its holiness is amplified. Uh, it's, it's more than just flat. So sometimes we might want to be, as Marcus already has puts it, greater than something, not weaker than something, not attached to something, not subject to something so much. But sometimes we want sensing the soul. And sensing the soul, as I pointed out um, in, in the, some point near the beginning of this course, sensing the soul involves humility. It's not about uh, being greater than, not being weaker than. There is a sense of this thing, this beloved other, this thing that I am perceiving, sensing, is somehow bigger than me. Sometimes we want that. <clears throat> uh, so, again, we're talking about the ways that we can very easily become imprisoned by certain ideas, certain teachings, certain traditions, um, or takes on teachings, or takes on traditions. And um, some of this happens in, in really gross ways. So, um, you know, uh, I've heard about uh, um, certain certain teachers or authorities in, in, in some situation being really quite... Um, aggressive and angry even with um, a student perhaps in a one-on-one situation or in a small group or in a group of teachers or whatever really aggressive in a kind of um, anti uh, what we might call anti-religious or certainly what we would call anti-soul or anti-spiritual anti-transcendent um, kind of uh, with, with that kind of uh, thrust and um, I wonder why, why, why so aggressive? Why so angry in this insistence that anything called the unfabricated is rubbish, or uh, that's only confusing to people, or um, there's just this world, just this ma- flat materiality? They wouldn't use the word flat, but it's what we would call flat. And um, why, why the anger? Why the violence? Why the aggression? So sometimes what's communicated is communicated in a very um, 
kind of aggressive way with the kind of throwing around of of power um, or, the, or the kind of exertion of power there. And as we said earlier, questions of epistemology, as the that guy Moscovici wrote, questions of epistemology are questions of social order, questions of epistemology, questions of ontology, questions of cosmology are questions of social order and questions of hierarchy. And so sometimes there is this very obvious kind of um, use of one's power position to insist on this or that take on epistemology, ontology, cosmology, reality whatever um, what's going on there is it is it um, a personal thing or an ego thing like one feels a little um, lacking I, I don't know lacking because one hasn't had certain experiences which other people have or or is it some other this kind of what I said this actually what we're grasping at with all this is in some cases fundamentally is I'm grasping at a certain world a certain cosmology and that's actually more important than anything else it's more important than the freedom or what I'm grasping at cosmology so I'm, I'm curious what goes on um, I don't think it goes on that much but when it goes on why why the anger why the pushiness why the um, throwing about of one's power why the kind of um, aggression there um, most of the time the, the kind of ways that we might f- uh, are affected by these ideas are much more subtle um, and the ways that we're imprisoned is much more subtle um, and it's just that we haven't um, considered uh, the, the ways those ideas are having influences. We haven't considered them fully. We haven't questioned them. So, for example, when I was back talking about science and its attitude to emotion and the way uh, emotions were kind of um, devalued in in that kind of epistemology contrasted with um, my friend's experience of um, the moon uh, sensing the soul of the moon in an emotion in a, in a emotionally vulnerable what she describes an emotionally vulnerable state um, so that kind of idea of epistemology that we inha- that we absorb from uh, either from science or from um, sometimes from Dharma context, um, or the idea that imagination plays uh, no role, uh, has no epistemic value. Um, Contrast that with um, Pauli and Jung's um, (coughs) conversations and beginnings of uh, a theory that actually gave a place to archetypal imagination in uh, the the, uh, epistemology and the construction of reality. But the point is, these ideas, like we don't kind of um, maybe consciously trace the fact that we tend to dismiss a perception that happens when we're feeling, say, a lot of grief, um, and we don't give it epistemic, uh, epistemological validity. We don't trace that to the scientific uh, revolution. So, but it's it's, it's quite subtle the way that works. Um, or uh, uh, so we've been talking about atomism as well. We may have in, in, uh, uh, imbibed that from the tradition. Um, 
but you might be a practitioner who is not really into um, a kind of way of practicing Dharma and way of meditating that has any kind of um, atomistic, atomistic uh, atomic reductionist uh, kind of process view. That's not how you view things. You may be more of a practitioner um, who, or someone may be more of a practitioner who's just into a kind of warm, kind open being with the emotions in the body and the connection there and regarding that this is what is happening this is what I'm asked to be with to meet to see as it is to open to this is what is happening this is what is arising arising for me now these emotions in the body this mind state Um, and then being with the breeze on the cheek when I'm outside walking of the taste of the food and the sight of the food and then also maybe I'm um, with an opening to um, the nature connection with the food, the soil on the carrots and uh, all that and the, the, uh, and all that is conceived of um, as what is all that is what is and what one needs to address and and Still, the question is, why limit uh, the life world, if, if one's even using it? Why limit that um, as, as the range of what one pays attention to? Why, why, give, um, uh, why is that worthy of attention or considered real um, over and above, say, my friend, um, sensing the moon in a certain way? You understand? This is real because it's real, it's an emotion, it's probably connected with my history, and I feel it in the body, and then the soil is real, and the carrot, and the potatoes, and the breeze is real, and it's real sensation, and all that. There's a limit to the life world, a limit to the appearances that are worthy, and the experiences that are worthy of paying attention to, and implicit in all that is an epistemology and an ontology. These are considered real, these are considered... um, worthy of attention and how I can relate to them and know them. That's a lot more subtle, like where we've got that kind of limitation um, in terms of the uh, scope of the life world, in terms of the epistemology, in terms of the ontology there. Uh, It operates more subtly and we're not even quite sure where we've got those ideas from. And often what happens is there's a kind of combination of influxes. So um, there's a kind of, for instance, uh, into how we practice there's um, and how we think of practice and then how that affects our life. There's the encouragement to deconstruct in this kind of reductionist way, an atomistic way that we described. There's the absence of any um, conceptual place for or encouragement of eros or even the discerning of eros. There's this notion over and over repeated about what is and being with things as they are or being with what is, etc., and um, all of that together may then have, uh, for example, an impact um, on how we might relate to something like music and the arts. Emphasis on deconstruction, not the notion of eros. We're just in the idea of what is is important. There's no. We might listen to music, we might even enjoy music, but there's not really a kind of conceptual opening out of the possibilities for music or art there. There's no positive place for art or music. You understand? Or music, um, I mean even worse than maybe music is just regarded as, oh you, you know, music is good but maybe like um, uh, 
you know, new age music where it's very sort of calming. Maybe that can be a point of music. In other words, what's the point of music if we're buying into, um, or if we've got the nag and the pull um, in the background, this emphasis on a kind of deconstructed, deconstructing, reductionist, um, atomic worldview, no place for eros, this emphasis on just what is um, and uh, all that, and w- what place can music really have? It can't really... Um, be open out all the arts. You understand? Uh, I'll come back to Michel Foucault just briefly. Um, <coughs> uh, he points out, I think, quite interestingly that um, in a book called The Hermeneutics of the Subject, um, he said, we can say that we enter the modern age, or he says, I mean, the history of truth enters its modern period. So he's he's questioning like this concept of truth, and so he's tracing the history of truth, and he said that enters its modern period, and we then enter the, the modern age when it is assumed that what gives access to the truth, the condition for the subject's access to the truth, is knowledge and knowledge alone. In other words, truth is just something you either know it or you don't. If you get the knowledge, then you know what's true. Um, that is to say, it is when the philosopher or the scientist or simply someone who seeks the truth can recognize the truth and have access to it in himself and through his acts of knowledge alone, without anything else being demanded of him, and without his having to alter or change in any way his being as a subject. And what he means is, um, it used to be that to have access to the truth, um, you would need to engage spiritual practices. You would need to purify your being ethically, um, intentionally, You'd need to purify your mind. You'd need to work on yourself and your capacity, your ability to actually know the truth. Um, uh, So something happens and we enter the modern age when it just becomes about you either know or you don't. You don't need to work on yourself in any way. Um, So... This is also interesting in how it translates to Dharma. So for a kind of Dharma that essentially, um, again what I might call existentialist Dharma, that essentially kind of equates practice with coping with uh, the tragedy of the real world, the impermanence, our existential predicament. Dharma practice is essentially coping with that. That's the view of Dharma. There's very little very little, there's a little bit, but very little truth to be discovered or ascertained or arrived at, and, and you know, that we don't already, that's not already obvious, and certainly none that requires a difficult um, course of practices, purifications, and spiritual exercises. It's just what we see, for the most part, maybe also this this is obviously the self is a process and kind of everything's connected to everything else, but, but it's not that hard to see. And mostly it's like, this is what you get, this existential predicament that is said to be obvious to everyone, and that's what you practice is coping with that in some way. So I've talked about this before. Um, truth is still assumed here as 
um, the evident reality that one must relate to and cope with. Yeah, it's just evident what truth is. Um, I would read the Pali Canon as uh, insisting rather that um, the the Dharma is kind of predicated on the difficult practice of gaining insight into reality and truth. That's what the Buddha means by insight into the nature of reality. And it's it's a long journey, and it's hard, and it's rare for someone to really go deep in that. Um, some modern interpretation of the Dharma just say, no, Dharma practice is just coping with this obvious reality of the impermanence and the kind of toughness of our existential predicament. So we have one perspective that has... Um, truth as some kind of uh, with, with this metaphysical status of objectivity metaphysics of objectivity is the truth we can um, do all these difficult spiritual practices and gain access to the truth that's hard to see, that's kind of concealed from us by our avidya, by our uh, impurity, etc. is one view, and the other view is just truth is obvious and practice is learning how to relate to that, how to cope with that what happens, I want to ask, what happens to either of these perspectives when truth, or the idea of truth, loses its metaphysical status of objectivity? There is no objective truth that I'm going to arrive at, um, of uh, either by um, because it's pretty obvious anyway, and it's just what everyone agrees on in our modern world, or it's some kind of transcendent or fabricated or, or some other something or other. What happens to either of these perspectives when the idea of truth loses its metaphysical status of objectivity? And what happens too to the notion of care of the soul? Um, <clears throat> This is actually what Foucault's book was about, how knowledge and care of the soul kind of go together, so that if we have knowledge of the truth, it's caring for the soul. So in the kind of um, existentialist kind of coping approach that I just described that's quite popular these days in some circles, um, what does care of the soul mean? It means, well, coping with the obvious truth. That if I learn how to cope, I learn the attitudes and the and the kind of um, uh, reflections or whatever or stances that just um, allow me to cope with this obvious truth and the and the difficulty of our existential uh, predicament and the tragedy of impermanence, etc. Um, then that learning how to cope is caring for 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 the soul, caring for the self. Let's say in the transcendent. Transcendent, transcendent or spiritualist approach, um, care of the self um, includes practices, um, etc., that um, allow the discovery of the liberating truth. Because when I, in that view, when I see that transcendent unfabricated, when I see that reality that is obscure, that takes a lot of difficult practice to see, when I see that truth, um, the knowing of that truth will also serve to care even more deeply for the self. Yeah. So there's a care for the self in coping, um, and that's the limit of care for the self in one paradigm. In the other paradigm, yeah, there's some coping, and there's the development of whatever, and then the seeing of the truth is the ultimate care for the self. 
because that truth liberates me and takes care of me. Uh, or rather, knowing that truth takes care of me. The wisdom that comes out of it, the, the attitudes, the non-attachment that comes out of it. So I want to ask, what happens uh, to either of these perspectives when truth loses its metaphysical status of objectivity? And what does care, self-care or whatever, mean um, when the self is realized to be empty and not knowable as it is, but dependent on the perspective and way of looking? So neither are we saying there is no self, we're just saying there's multiple perspectives on what the self is. And what, what is this self that I'm caring for? Is it the soul as we're talking about? Is it, is it a process? Is it, is it what? Is it the, the, the scared um, human being uh, daring to look at the existential predicament and the facticity of that? So how do these notions... Um, uh, what happens to um, to these kind of ways we conceive of the Dharma when we realize the emptiness of truth, the plurality of truths, and um, we also realize that no self-view, there's no particular um, conception or perception of self that is ultimately true. You understand? So this whole idea about knowledge and what it means to care for the self has, uh, Foucault's book is really tracing that through history, actually just a portion of history, but um, these are things that we care about. They're wrapped up in Dharma practice. What does it mean to know? What does it mean to care for ourselves, to care for our life? And what does it mean, I'm asking, when we um, kind of... um, open up the notion of truth we see its emptiness and, and we open up a plural notion of truth and when we see that any particular self view is not going to be the real uh, the, the, the ultimately true um, take on the self so to me um, when we uh, are no longer in, in the um, view of a singular objective reality and when we're no longer in the grip of believing there is a particular view of self or conception of self that is the real one, then to me it opens up possibilities. The whole realm of our um, possibilities for practice, for um, thinking, for perception, for sensing, for exploring is opened up. And one of the ways we can think about care of the self is care of the soul in our sense of the word, what we mean by soul. In other words, soul-making, because that's what the soul, in our sense of the word, cares most about, soul-making. And we can view care of the self that way. And we can view um, knowledge and truth as participatory. So can we... Uh, be aware of, can we understand how ideas of the real or what's real or ideas about reality, um, how ontological, epistemological um, ideas and commitments, beliefs, assumptions come into our practice to shape, limit, direct our practice and what it can be, where it can go and what it can do for us. 
and what it can open for us, and also into our life and our experience. And um, these ideas, as I pointed out, the whole point here is that they shape and influence um, our experiences, our ideas, our experiences, our very sense, senses of things, of the world, of self, others, world, existence. And in that shaping and influencing, either they limit it or they open it. Or they limit in certain ways and they open in certain ways. Can we see that? Be Recognize it? Be aware of it? Understand it? This fact of the influence of ideas <coughs> regarding reality. Jean Baudrillard, a uh, uh, modern French philosopher, said, The map precedes the territory. The map precedes the territory. In other words, our conceptual frameworks, our ideas, shape the actual landscape, that we, the territory that we find ourselves then travelling through and experiencing. Um, I can go with that, although it might be a little extreme, um, as a view. Uh, there's uh, another writer um, called um, Boaventura de Sousa Santos, and uh, he's one of the guys that talks, I don't know if he uses the words, but um, uh, epistemic colonialism, epistemicide, um, those kind of things. I'm not sure if he uses the, the words, but he, he writes a little bit about that. And, um, and he says, let's enlarge the present and the space of the world. Let's move on. Let's travel with crude maps. Between theory and action, there may be correspondence, but there is no sequence. Between theory and action, we could say, between theory and practice, between our ideas and our conception, conceptual frameworks and how we practice, how we then experiment with perception. Um, between theory and practice or practical explorations, there may be correspondence, but there is no sequence. In other words, he's not as extreme as Jean Baudrillard who says, the map precedes the territory. There's a give and take in our practice of sensing the soul. Ideas shape um, perceptions, shape the sensing. The sensing that we experience also calls into question ideas, opens them, expands them, suggests new ones. Isn't that exactly what we're talking about with the when we describe the soul-making dynamic as the as the mutual involvement and dialogue and enriching and um, uh, interpenetration and uh, impact of eros psyche logos, enlarging, being enlarged, and that logos, the idea, the concept, the ideas, the conception, influencing the perception, the psyche, what we call the image of things. And the images, the perception of things, uh, the psyche influencing the logos. And included in that is um, our affect, our emotions, and how they color and push and influence and open different doors, sh- shine different pers- perspectives, and the desire and the eros. And all of that is included in the way this works, in the way that the territory then opens up in the way that we um, discover the territory and construct our maps as we're going. And so uh, that, that could be, uh, what Aventura de Sousa Santos writes, could be a kind of metaphor or encouragement for what we're doing as well.
so I haven't focused too much on the on the um, too much on the on the direction uh, of, of uh, in relation to all this uh, from from the emptiness point of view. <clears throat> but either with or both with understanding emptiness very deeply for oneself in practice, the emptiness of all phenomena. And actually that understanding being digested, going deep, maturing and affecting one's outlook and gaining confidence in that perspective. So either with that or both with that and um, with this uh, brief sort of uh, questioning or poking a little bit or critique or opening up of these um, uh, ideas that have influenced us, um, epistemological ideas, ontological ideas, metaphysical ideas, hermeneutic ideas, um, both socially, uh, so, you know, uh, in terms of their social aspects and their philosophical aspects. So either from what we've been talking about over the past few hours, or from the emptiness perspective, or even with both, hopefully, um, or my hope is that will help um, create a little more space for us um, and free a sense of freedom possibility legitimacy to explore this sensing the soul and the range that's possible there um, and uh, create uh, also or discover a kind of ground a different ground um, uh, philosophically uh, in terms of our beliefs and thoughts ideas on which on which you can rest this sensing the soul okay so from here <coughs> I hope that some of that is helpful or at least sprinkle some seeds that may be helpful later on um, uh, and then we can go on now to to uh, look at specific practice possibilities um, and the relationship with ideas and how they open up possibilities in practice. Let's stop there for now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.